Welcome to the Designing a Humane Future podcast. My name is Sarah Tranum, and I'm the host of this series that explores some of the most complex challenges we face and examines them through a design and systems thinking lens. The goal of the podcast is to better understand deep systemic issues and to learn about the socially innovative approaches being used to address and resolve them and that can help us design a more humane future for everyone. And this episode will focus on homelessness. Pre-pandemic data shows that more than 235,000 people in Canada experience homelessness in any given year. Approximately 35,000 people may be experiencing homelessness on any given night. And even more, at least 50,000 people experience hidden homelessness, like couch surfing, sleeping in a car, or other precarious housing. Homelessness disproportionately impacts people who are Indigenous, LGBTQ2S, racialized, as well as women. 20% of the homeless population are youth aged 16 to 24. Homelessness was magnified during the pandemic. It was made more visible as tents and encampments emerged in communities that had never seen the effects of homelessness up close. Those who experienced chronic homelessness were upended as shelter spaces and support services were dramatically impacted by outbreaks and lockdowns. People who had been housed months before suddenly found themselves without a roof over their heads due to the dramatic changes brought on by the virus. Lost jobs, strained relationships, poor health, abuse, addiction, evictions. Those already experiencing precarity found themselves in even more uncertainty during the pandemic. Though COVID-19 worsened and further complicated the challenges of homelessness, the system's failures that caused people to experience homelessness existed long before the pandemic and will continue going forward unless the deep cracks in the structural underpinning of our society are addressed and resolved. This is a two-part episode that offers an in-depth understanding of homelessness. In part one, we'll explore the system's challenges of homelessness. In part two, we'll learn about the solutions that are working, as well as the barriers that remain to meaningfully redesigning these systems to help eradicate homelessness. In this podcast, I talk about design not just as a product, service, or space, but as a tool for addressing complex challenges at a systems level. I had the privilege to interview nine experts for this episode. These are stakeholders who are working on homelessness in various capacities, from the policy to the grassroots level. You'll hear their voices as we unpack the different perspectives and efforts underway to not just manage homelessness, but to end it. First, it's important to understand that this episode positions housing as a right. This is a foundation for the work being done by those interviewed. And for many of us, it may seem obvious that everyone should have housing. But housing as a right has broad implications for how society responds to those lacking housing and the duty to assist. Housing as a legislated right is also relatively new. In 2019, Canada passed Bill C-97, which contained the National Housing Strategy Act that set out the federal right to housing. It's one of only a handful of countries to make housing a right. While this legislation is significant and historic, it is a collective right, not an enforceable individual right to access housing, meaning individuals don't have legal grounds to pursue if housing is not provided. This right is also not guaranteed under the Constitution of Canada, nor does it apply to lower levels of government. So, for example, the province of Ontario cannot be forced to follow the recommendations set forth in the legislation. The bill is an important step 
but lacks legal teeth. Seeing housing as a right is also a philosophy. Today's homeless sector, meaning the broad range of organizations, agencies, and government entities that respond to issues related to homelessness, emerged from a charitable model. Historically, it was faith-based and civic groups that addressed hunger, poverty, and homelessness because dire need was not being met by governments. And though the sector has greatly evolved since that time, there's a legacy of helping the quote-unquote deserving poor. There is a clear need to move beyond managing those in crisis to addressing the structural factors that often lead to homelessness. Melanie Redmond is the president and CEO of Away Home, working together to end youth homelessness partnership and the Implementation Director of Making the Shift Youth Homelessness Social Innovation Lab. Her work focuses on prevention and innovative ways to assist youth from experiencing homelessness. Melanie discusses the mindset shift from serving the needy to recognizing what people need to thrive. We've got this old charitable mindset where it's enough to give somebody who's struggling a cot, a bowl of soup, a sandwich, and a bag. It really does come from this charitable mindset that I think is incredibly outdated around helping the, in quote, needy. And these judgments that society makes around who deserves and who does not deserve. And I think that these are issues that, you know, we really have to grapple with. And I think the pandemic has has been a great job of really shining the spotlight on these cracks and how we um, address the the issue of poverty and homelessness. Again, you know, if we had just stopped to think, how could we prevent people from becoming homeless in the first place along any of the paths that led us to where we are now over the last 30 years, I think we'd be in a very different place. But again, you have to get past that who deserves and who doesn't deserve Essential to the shift in solving homelessness is understanding that homelessness is not just a result of an individual's actions, but is a culmination of systemic factors. While people's choices and circumstances undoubtedly come into play, only addressing these fails to recognize how individuals fit within the larger picture, within the structural realities that shape options and attitudes and creates either opportunities or barriers for moving out of homelessness. Amanda DeFalco is the Deputy Director of Built for Zero Canada that is part of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. Built for Zero Canada is a national effort that is helping communities to end chronic homelessness and veteran homelessness as a first step on the path to eliminating all homelessness in Canada. Amanda talks about the need to get to the root causes and not just react to the symptoms of homelessness in order to meaningfully address and attempt to solve it. Homelessness simply means the absence of housing. Like that's the basic foundation. And with that, that means that the face of homelessness is the face of any Canadian. So it's my face, it's your face, it's the face of our family and friends and our neighbors. They're people who've been disadvantaged by our society due to a number of different factors. And with that being said, there's some people that are obviously disproportionately impacted by homelessness, such as our Indigenous communities, women in racialized communities in particular. But most people that attribute homelessness or think about the issue of homelessness and what causes it are usually looking at individual risk factors. So somebody's mental health, for example. But we know that this is actually a fallacy because most Canadians with a mental health diagnosis are housed. So instead, I would encourage us to move beyond that individual experience, which can further complicate somebody's homelessness, but really looking at the heart of the issues, which is the failures within our social safety net in society, like affordable housing, livable wages, uh, and then those other um, intersecting issues that ultimately lead to a loss of somebody, um, someone's house. 
clearly what I've seen through my own experience and through research and uh, through community efforts is that our past responses to homelessness were never designed to end it. They were ever only designed to manage the symptoms. And when you combine the structural failures that I mentioned before, like affordable housing and livable wages, and pair it with well-intentioned services that help to fill an immediate temporary need, you're not really going to address the heart of the issue. And so you're not going to see improvements in, in terms of reductions. So if you imagine if someone with a brain hemorrhage, for example, goes to the ER and the medical staff in the ER give the person an aspirin and send them on their way, well, that's not going to solve the brain aneurysm. And so the same thing with homelessness. We need to redesign the way that we are working on the issue of homelessness so that we're moving beyond the bed in a cot in a meal. We need to do more. Like homelessness may not only be about housing, but it is always about housing. And once people have access to that housing, they can then be connected to supports that they need to remain housed and address um, maybe some of those individual risk factors. But that's not really the heart of the issue. To better understand the complexities of homelessness, we'll look at the city of Hamilton as a case study. Hamilton offers many lessons, both for its unique aspects as well as the similarities that make it comparable to other cities and towns in Canada and beyond. All those interviewed for this episode have been involved in initiatives in Hamilton. Hamilton is located along the western shores of Lake Ontario, 58 kilometers southwest of Toronto, with a population of just over 530,000 people. Like many urban areas in Canada, it's experienced a rise in homelessness since the 1990s, a changing housing market characterized by increasing demand and rising housing prices as people left Toronto in search of more affordable housing options, has made Hamilton increasingly unaffordable, especially for those at risk of being homeless. In response, organizations working with city government have developed several innovative pilot projects, and the city of Hamilton has committed to ending chronic homelessness by 2025. It's important to realize that the solutions to homelessness are not unknown or out of reach. The experts I spoke with and the body of research clearly point to three things that are needed. One is affordable housing. Two, support programs. And three is prevention. We'll look at these three key ingredients within the context of Hamilton. Affordable housing. So how can we house and keep people housed if there's not enough affordable housing? It seems an obvious question, yet demand still far exceeds supply for affordable housing. Stephen Gates points to a shift in the role of government in Canada and a decades-long lack of investment in housing that has led to the levels of homelessness cities like Hamilton are seeing now. Steve is a professor and research chair in homelessness and research impact at York University and is the president of the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness. He's also the research director of Making the Shift Youth Homelessness Social Innovation Lab. I think if we look historically, we can see what happened. Prior to the 1980s, certainly between the Second World War and the 1980s, the government of Canada and the provinces and territories and municipalities were investing a lot annually in building affordable housing and supporting it. So like by the 1980s, on an average year, the investment would produce 18,000 new units of housing, affordable housing, including co-ops and these kinds of things. And then there was a neoliberal shift that took place around the late 80s, early 90s, where the government shifted from direct investment in affordable housing into using tax incentives, tax expenditures, to subsidize people like me to use my RSPs to buy a house. It's neoliberal because the idea was that the federal 
direct investment will reduce, but they'll use tax expenditures as an investment to spur on the private sector to build affordable housing. So that went from like 18,000 to 20,000 a year down to like a thousand a year. And that changed homelessness. At the same time, we had the globalization of the world economy leading to loss of good paying jobs, cutbacks like in Ontario, where they cut welfare rates. I think it was 25% or 30% never recovered. So you created the situation where all of a sudden people were losing their homes and they weren't like, oh, I'm deciding to be homeless. It's that they were losing their homes in the 1990s. And so to fast track that story, you know, here we are 30 plus years later and the, the results of that experiment are in that that was a disastrous set of policy decisions. So we've lost 30 years of investment in affordable housing. So it doesn't matter what government's in. The ability to pay for 30 years of lost investment is massive. And the other thing is during that 30 years, the population of Canada has grown by a third. So the pressure on the housing market is huge. We have the government of Canada to come back with a national housing strategy, which is great. But it's a, that's a lot to, to recapture when other things have happened since, like uh, Airbnbs and the financialization of the housing market, where you have investment funds buying up housing stock. We're in big trouble. And so that's going to make it challenging. Surprise! The Reagan-Thatcher doctrine of trickle-down economics did not result in creating affordable housing. The lack of government investment and the neoliberal reliance on the marketplace has resulted in prices skyrocketing throughout Canada. In Hamilton, the average home price is $832,388, an increase of 29% since just last year. The volume of sales increased by 73% in the past 12 months. For comparison, in the year 2000, the average price tag was just over $182,000 for a home. This is an increase of more than 375% over 21 years. Hamilton, along with Toronto and Vancouver, are now the three least affordable cities, not just in Canada, but in North America. Living in Hamilton is more expensive than Los Angeles or New York City. Of course, housing prices have impacted rental prices, creating a highly competitive market for rental units. In more than one interview, those working with people seeking housing spoke about the need to have cash on site to secure an apartment. Landlords can hold out for the quote-unquote ideal tenants, those with full-time employment, perfect credit scores, good references. This makes the stigma of renting to someone who has experienced homelessness an even bigger barrier to finding housing. And rent evictions are the act of evicting tenants under the guise of renovations in order to justify hiking up the rent are on the rise and are yet another factor leading to being outpriced and without a home. In Canada, each municipality has a centralized waiting list for available social housing that is subsidized. In Hamilton, this list currently has over 5,000 names, and the estimated wait time is two to five years. Luckily, there are other organizations working to fill in the gap for more affordable units. Inwell is one. It's a Christian charity that creates affordable housing communities that, in its words, support people seeking health, wellness, and belonging. It has over 650 units and 13 buildings located in five communities across Ontario, including nine buildings in Hamilton. Jeff Nevin is the executive director at Inwell. He discusses the demand for the units in Inwell's buildings. 
The unfortunate part, and this just absolutely breaks my heart and our staff's heart, is we've had to close our waiting lists for most of our programs over the last year because it was giving people a sense of false hope. Some of our programs were up to 20 years before we could help someone. And uh, so we're working really, really hard to create new affordable housing with support, but the demand is just so great. Uh, For an example, uh, two years ago, we opened a program in London, Ontario, 68 apartments, and we opened the portal on our website for applications, and uh, we opened it for with, with, we didn't advertise or announce it anywhere, and we had over 600 people request housing in six weeks before we had to close it, and and that's an example. So 600 people desperately looking for housing with support, 68 could be housed, and the remaining 532 people uh, are looking for housing, and that's just a quick, short snapshot. Over the last year, the list of folks that we have on file looking for housing uh, more than doubled. So we actually had to close our wait list because the timeline is so long. Indwell and a consortium of other community housing providers formed Hamilton is Home. With the needed resources in place, this group is committed to creating 3,000 affordable housing units in Hamilton. This can help to reduce, if not eliminate, the waiting list for housing. Jeff explains the model Indwell uses to finance its projects and the challenges of government funding. We've done our numbers. In a city like Hamilton, we need right now 3,000 deeply affordable units. And that would make a significant dent and perhaps end homelessness in Hamilton. We as a sector in Hamilton have come together, the affordable housing nonprofit sector has come together and said, do we have the ability and capacity to do this? And we formed an organization called Hamilton is Home. And the beautiful part is that we're working in collaboration We've made a list of all the properties that we have access to, either own or could own in short order, and build units. And guess what that number is? 3,000 units that we could build over the next three years. So we actually have the ability and the solutions. And we also believe that it's not a matter of lack of resources. We have the resources in our community. It's about how we choose to allocate those resources and who should have access to those resources. We have 180 people who together have lent us $28 million. It's unsecured. They're taking a risk with us. I would say it's not a big risk, but they put money with us. So we take that money, we buy property, and we start construction, and we work on this. Why do we need to do that? Well, because our federal government with all the wonderful things you've heard about the national housing strategy and the investment, they also have a policy that they're last to the table. So their money doesn't come until people have been living in our units for six months to a year. So we have to bridge that financing. And we have people on the street who are doing that for us. We have people in our neighborhoods, in our community, we have businesses who are lending us money at low rates and sometimes interest-free so that we can do this. I can't say exactly where right now, but we're putting an offer in on a, uh, a property tomorrow and somebody within our support community is lending us interest-free for five years 
the entire amount that we need to purchase that property. They're even writing the deposit check that's going in with our offer to make it possible that we can have a property that we can work to get uh, environmentally clean, get zoned, uh, get ready for construction. And then we can, with that, work with our municipal, provincial, and federal government to try to find funding to be able to fund that. And you'd think that that would be possible, but it is an absolute struggle and challenge on every single project to find funding to make that happen. But it starts with people. And what we do when we make these kind of commitments personally, our governments end up following. Part of the challenge is investing in the creation of new affordable housing units. Another part of the equation is preserving existing housing. And Hamilton speculators and developers have swooped into the city, buying up once affordable properties and displacing longtime residents and would-be tenants. Community land trusts play an important role in keeping land in the hands of the community. The Hamilton Community Land Trust is working to hold on to properties and to keep them as affordable places for residents to live. Caligaro Matina is the president of the Hamilton Community Land Trust. One of the areas of the city where the land trust is working is the Beasley neighborhood, which has become a hotspot for investors and developers looking to profit from the gentrification in the housing market. The speed of sales of these properties is a huge challenge for nonprofit, community-driven organizations like the Hamilton Community Land Trust to secure financing and purchase properties before developers do. Caligaro discusses the changes he's seen in Hamilton and the lack of a level playing field that's making it close to impossible for communities to protect land from for-profit developers. Hamilton's now third most unaffordable city in Canada. That's a big change from uh, over 10 years ago when Hamilton was a place where you avoided to live and uh, housing prices were fairly low. The Beasley neighborhood around 2006-2007 was considered to be the poorest neighborhood in Hamilton. I think it was the 12th or the 15th poorest neighborhood in the, in the metropolitan city in Canada. So basically, it was a place you wouldn't want to live just because it was, I guess, it was so poor, uh, neglected, and so on. The average prices of houses in those days, probably up to about 2010, could have bought a, a single detached brick house in BC for about 80000 to $100,000. A few months ago, I heard that the Hamilton has now become the third least affordable city in Canada. That same house is now going for about well over $600,000. As much as it can be a poor neighborhood uh, with a lot of challenges, it was also a very vibrant neighborhood. People had a strong sense of community. People helped each other. They were interdependent rather than independent, which meant uh, they had to work together to do things. So you have this real strong sense of community there and identity and character and heritage that's disappearing with the displacement. They're being forced into different parts of the city where they have to either rebuild community or cannot integrate into the community because the community is maybe a little bit more expensive. But that loss of community is probably just as tragic from a social point of view as the economic value of the displacement. I think displacement in general, as you can see in history, is just a dangerous thing to do. First of all, it's just not the right way to treat people. You just don't go around treating people as if they're stray cats and shooing them away. It reflects on our society. We hold uh, commodities such as prices of property over the value of a person. I think that speaks louder than anything that I can say right now. So you're a land trust. Uh, we don't have 
tons of money. We don't have hardly any money to just go out and buy land. So if we're handicapped just in that way, and even if we try to fundraise and try to find ways of uh, capturing money, uh, these developers have so much resources and money and so on uh, that by the time you even think about a piece of property, it's gone. The two things that we've been looking at is create policies within the city such that the tenants have the first right to buy a piece of property. So if there's a rental property going up for sale, the tenants should have the first rights to buy that piece of property. Also prioritize policies that uh, allow land trusts or other affordable providers the option to purchase the, the land before the developers can. But the land trust itself, our current model is not that we will build affordable housing, but we'll buy the land. So the land will belong to the community land trust in which the people living on that land will be members of the community land trust, so it will be community owned. But the building on top could be another partnering with the affordable housing uh, services. The difference is in this case, the building could be put up for sale at whatever marginal price, but the land is, doesn't go up for sale. It stays with the land trust. So there's the varying models of affordability and what they call perpetual affordability. Over-reliance on the market has not worked and has led to an untenable situation in which the middle class is being outpriced, let alone those whose income is derived from low-wage work or government benefits. The creation and preservation of affordable housing are essential. Significant investment, usable financial mechanisms, and regulation of the market are needed to facilitate this. A plan for ending homelessness must include a comprehensive strategy to create and maintain affordable housing. But it's not a silver bullet solution. Housing is one part of a systems-based solution needed for transitioning people out of homelessness. Marcy McEvin is the Outreach Coordinator at Keeping Six, Hamilton Harm Reduction Action League. Keeping Six is a community-based organization that defends the rights, dignity, and humanity of people who use drugs. Marcy works directly with those facing homelessness and has lived experience being unhoused. Marcy speaks about why housing in and of itself was not always the best fit for her along her journey. I was in Ottawa and they have a lot of like housing programs for people with mental health and like substance use and I was involved in criminal justice system due to my substance use and mental health, which are two illnesses that make a lot of things that occur illegal, I guess. And I would be rushed in the housing. They're like, we have an apartment for you. And the right answer is always yes, right? You have an apartment, I'll take it. And then I would get evicted because I didn't know how to have an apartment. I didn't know how to pay bills. I didn't know that you had to like pay for hydro or, and I know that stuff seems so basic, right? But I was never fully taught how to do that. I wasn't taught how to manage stuff, right? So I'd get an apartment and, and after you've been unhoused for a while, then you're housed, it, it comes with a, a lot of responsibility, right? And I would bring people in, right? Like and all this stuff and, and then I'd end up homeless again. Or then... I'd have periods of homelessness and I would have like housing workers and there was never housing. So they'd come meet with me and they're like, we might have a place for you. And then that place would fall through because rent prices were too much based on what I was making. I was on ODSP uh, for a long time. Long part of my life was on Ontario Disability. Marcy's experience speaks volumes about the need for support and choice in housing that meets individuals' needs. Next, we'll look at the kinds of supports being offered and that are essential to helping people access and maintain housing. For decades, the prevailing policy and programmatic directive for homelessness was crisis intervention. 
dealing with people in crisis on the streets, in shelter, in institutions, and through drop-in services. Part of this model was that in order for people experiencing homelessness to be placed in permanent housing, first they needed to be quote-unquote housing ready, which meant being clean and sober and in counseling and treatment for mental health. Many practitioners working on the ground as counselors, social workers, doctors, and nurses observed that this approach just didn't work. It was virtually impossible for someone to be housing ready when they were struggling to find shelter and just survive. Sam Sembrius, an outreach psychologist in New York City in the 1990s, gathered a group of other outreach workers together, including those with lived experience with homelessness and addiction. Together they asked, what if we got people in permanent housing first and then worked with them to get the services they needed? After receiving funding to expand his pilot into a full-fledged organization called Pathways to Housing, this innovation proved to be highly effective. It was the foundation for Housing First, a rights-based intervention rooted in the philosophy that all people deserve housing, and that adequate housing is a precondition for recovery. It centers on consumer choice, self-determination, and community integration. In 2008, the federal government of Canada launched a five-year research demonstration project of Housing First, called At Home, or Chez Soi, in French. Years of data gathering and in-depth analysis of the outcomes proved the effectiveness of the Housing First approach. The lessons learned from At Home, Chez Soi have been integral to the design and implementation of a number of innovative initiatives, including those in Hamilton. For many years, much of Hamilton's budget for homeless services was allocated to shelters and ensuring that there were enough beds available. In the early 2000s, organizations in collaboration with the city government began to shift to a housing-first approach. Hamilton's Hostels to Homes, or H2H, pilot project proved to be effective in getting people from the streets and temporary shelters into permanent homes. It helped to cement the Housing First philosophy into the City of Hamilton's housing policy and action plan on homelessness. Elisa De Jagger is the former Senior Project Manager of Homelessness Policy and Programs at the City of Hamilton. Elisa talks about how Housing First shifted the thinking within the sector and what is possible for people who have experienced chronic homelessness. Hamilton actually has a long history of Housing First. One of our social service agencies, Wesley, was one of the first adopters of this approach, rolling out the program. In 2015, we, as the city, as the system planner, created four unique Housing First programs that had a focus on different populations. So we had a a Housing First program for men, for women, for youth, and an Indigenous program as well. In those early days, we tried to take a collective approach to how we were rolling out these programs within our community. And it was for us really the beginning understandings of how to create a coordinated system how to implement what we call in our sector coordinated access. So really identifying individuals in our system and really right matching them to the housing support that they would need in order to obtain housing and then be set up to really succeed and and stabilize in their housing. I think the adoption of housing first as a philosophy, but also as a best practice homelessness intervention really changed our mindset about what the clients in our system, they can achieve. And I say that as someone who worked at that time within the homeless serving system, I worked frontline, I worked in management roles. And I remember at the beginning of my early days in my career, 
there may have been assumptions about what is possible or not possible for individuals that, that came into our system repeatedly. And when Housing First was introduced and the expectation that we were going to not work on those previous assumptions, we are going to support and make a housing unit available. We are going to go and support a person in their home, you know, in consultation with the client. We're going to connect to these external resources and bring them. And, and you know, the more that we can have those external supports, formal or informal, meet with a person in their home, reinforcing home, the likelihood of that housing stability taking root would happen. And at first, when we rolled this program out, when I was in, a, in an agency at the time, there was a lot of skepticism. It was sort of, how is this going to actually work? I'm not sure. <laughs> and I've got to say, it was, it was mind-blowing at times. We had, at that time, we had 150 individual women who were chronically homeless, who had really complex health and other factors in their life. And yet we saw people being able to obtain units and with the right supports and with really tailored supports to what the person needs, have success. People that had been in the shelter system accessing beds on and off for years, we now never saw back at the shelters because they had their own place and they were provided supports to actually succeed. And so for me personally, just witnessing that my assumptions could be shattered just really actually gave me a lot of hope because whatever I understood to be true before actually was up for question and we can't limit people or we can't limit our perceptions of what people could or could not do based on our limited information. Housing First programs provide the services that people need to stay housed and where they can thrive. It works. But critics point to some of the shortfalls of this intervention in practice. One critique is that it is more than just a program. Housing First is a philosophy. In the case of communities and service providers where housing as a right is not fully embraced, the implementation can fall flat. When quickly housing people to just get them off the streets is seen as the end goal and the needed wraparound services are not provided or fully funded, a watered-down version is the result. At best, it doesn't work. At worst, it's a way of pushing homelessness out of sight, an extension of nimbyism. Another challenge to Housing First points back to the lack of affordable housing. Even if a Housing First initiative is well-funded and providing the needed services, where does it find housing in an expensive city for people who may be dependent on government benefits or low-wage jobs? In Ontario, the Ontario Disability Support Program, or ODSP, provides a housing allowance of $497 per month for one person. Ontario Works, the social welfare program, provides $390 a month. This includes the cost of utilities. The average cost of a studio apartment in Hamilton is $898. It's $1,096 for a one-bedroom. So how does anyone receiving these benefits afford housing? It's clear, the math doesn't work. Ulyssa speaks to the challenge of finding housing in an increasingly unaffordable market. Before the pandemic, we had already found it to be hard to compete to secure units. You often had to sort of show up with cash on site to reserve a chance to even get into a, a rental unit. This has just exacerbated it, along with delays in showing units, because everybody had to understand how do we do this in a pandemic? How do we do this with COVID-19 and, and stay safe? So even some of those normal processes had to be adapted. It, it caused even more delays. I think what we see in our system 
in relation to this is that our Housing First programs are, are having a real challenge navigating this environment with these rental units and securing rental units in, in this housing market. Even though we are seeing fewer people enter into our homeless system, they are staying longer. And it's reconnecting into housing. It's becoming much more difficult and challenging. And a lot of the individuals and families that we are working with have a limited income. And so it's just the gap between the income source and what's required to pay the rent, let alone food and supplies that you need for living, the gap is just growing. And so it's really forced some of our programs to think about other options. And, and yes, there are sort of, again, those structural issues, such as, you know, how much money people can receive on different types of income supports. But our Housing First programs don't have the authority to actually change those amounts. So how do they then operate within those parameters? And so we have some examples of our programs getting more creative, thinking about either shared accommodations, renting rooms. And it's hard because we know that when the clients that we're working with have been homeless for such a long period of time and have different histories of trauma, often the clients do a lot better if they have their own place, like a bachelor apartment or one-bedroom apartment. But those seem sort of out of reach at this moment. So what are the other options? And again, it's going back to that problem solving. How can we make this work, at least for now, in terms of stabilizing ourselves and, and seeing if we can still gain those, those additional supports that come with housing in terms of improving your health and improving different aspects that might be contributing to stress? This leads to another weakness of housing first in practice. With a limited supply of housing, those in the most need are prioritized, leading many others to wait, often in precarious housing like shelters or in the streets. Stephen Gates from the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness talks about how the system must change so that people are not getting sicker while they're waiting for housing. Like we've created this horrible system now where you have to wait before you get housing first. So you become homeless and it's like, sorry, there's a whole lineup of people who've been homeless for years ahead of you. Wait until you've been homeless for a year or two or five years. Wait until your, your mental health really declines. Wait until you start using illicit substances to cope with the, the trauma and the mental health problems. And then you're going to be in a queue for housing first. Like it's an absurd system. And all of these things are well-meaning. I'm not meaning to criticize the work that people do in any of these situations, but we've got to like do it very differently and focus on prevention. And there are some good ideas and examples of how to do that. This is a clear example of how the interconnected systems of housing and social supports do not align, resulting in the inability for housing for service providers to secure housing for people who need it. It points to another critical piece of ending homelessness, and that's prevention. How can we keep people from becoming homeless? Steve makes connections between actions taken to prevent the spread of the coronavirus and those needed to prevent homelessness. So one of the reasons that people explain why we should just focus on chronically homeless people is they say it's like an emergency room in a hospital. They will triage and attend to those who are closest to dying. So with homelessness, 
we triage and we have to attend to those who are the sickest and we can't really predict who will die, but that kind of language gets used. And to me, I'm like, that's a horrible metaphor. Like, would you build your healthcare system around the emergency room? No, we have a giant healthcare system and the emergency room plays a key role, but you, you wouldn't make that your whole thing. The other reason why the, the pandemic is teaching us some things. Here we are in the third wave of the pandemic in, in Canada. The hospital rooms are bursting at the seams. But here's what we're doing. We use personal protection equipment. People wear masks all the time. We're told to socially isolate. We're, we're trying to control contact. And we've got now a good handful of vaccines that are effective that we're working to, to put out there. All of those things are preventive. And you couldn't imagine a response to a pandemic without that. And so you can ask the question, like, what would the pandemic look like if we treated it like homelessness? It mean no vaccines, no masks, no isolation, be a free-for-all. And we, what we would invest in is very big waiting rooms at the emergency department. That would be the equivalent of emergency shelters. And then wait for people to come, and they would come. And many, many, many people would die, and many of those who survived would go on with damaging conditions for the rest of their life. Most people would say, that's crazy. We would never do that. That would be madness. Yet that's what we do with homelessness. So let's switch that question around. What if we treated homelessness like a pandemic? It would mean we would continue to do housing first, of course. We continue to have some degree of emergency services and supports, but proportional to the problem. But we really focus on prevention, trying to help people who are at risk of homelessness to not become homeless. And that would be a huge part of the work. One of the ways to keep people from being homeless is helping them stay housed. Eviction prevention programs offer this. Some communities provide resources, legal aid, and small loans to help cover rent and stave off evictions. And during the pandemic, we've seen significant sums invested in preventing evictions. The states of New York and California have both extended moratoriums on evictions. California has extended aid through September 2021 and is using its budget surplus to pay 100% of back rent for millions of renters. There was a moratorium on evictions in the province of Ontario, but it is now lifted, allowing evictions filed during the pandemic to proceed. This will inevitably impact many people living in Hamilton, and we are yet to see the full impact and how many people who lost jobs and experienced other hardships during the pandemic will lose their homes and face homelessness. Melanie Redmond of Away Home and Making the Shift Youth Homelessness Social Innovation Lab talks about why focusing on youth is essential to helping to end homelessness. One of the reasons that we landed on youth homelessness as a priority, I'll give you the Government of Canada's data around youth homelessness and their 2018 time count across Canada for all of their designated communities. 50% of all people who are currently experiencing homelessness report that they had their first experience of homelessness before they were 25. Our definition of youth homelessness is the Canadian Observatory definition 13 through 24, so up to 25. So, you know, we think wow, if we did a better job on youth homelessness and in particular youth homelessness prevention, we could really make an impact on, on chronic homelessness in the decades to come. So we're making some traction, definitely, but there's so much work still to go and we're up against some pretty big obstacles. 
Making the shift has demonstration projects in Ottawa, Toronto, and Hamilton that are implementing a Housing First for Youth framework that Away Home and the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness have developed. Central to this framework are things like providing youth with choices in housing options and building youth natural supports to family and other trusted people in their lives. This framework is not just about housing youth who are experiencing homelessness, but it's about helping each individual flourish as they enter into adulthood. About 25 to 30 programs throughout Canada and several in Europe are using this framework. Melanie discusses the Housing First for Youth framework and the successes she and her team have seen in the outcomes of the demonstration projects. Housing First for Youth is an adaptation of Housing First, the adult pathways model for the needs of developing adolescents and youth. So when Housing First was being rolled out in Canada, the dominant policy move and the investment through the HPS program with the federal government. I think 2014, if I'm not mistaken, the youth service providers that I was working with at the time were very concerned that all of the investment was going to go to Housing First and that that wouldn't meet. It's not the right model for young people. And they were right. And started working to say, okay, well, what would Housing First adapted for young people need to look like? And so started with a framework, uh, then developed a program model guide then got money for the uh, demonstration project to do a randomized control trial in Ottawa on Housing First for Youth, and then an Indigenous-led adaptation of Housing First for Youth, led by Hamilton Regional Indian Center. And the uh, research is Indigenous-led by Indigenous researchers as well, and contains a, a really strong cultural reconnection component, working with elders, et cetera. So it's a really fantastic model. And then in Toronto is a randomized control trial and it's focused on youth exiting care as a prevention model before they experience homelessness um, to identify young people exiting care that are at imminent risk of homelessness and providing them with housing and wraparound supports for as long as they need. And it's a rights-based approach as is Housing First. And it really breaks down some of the things that have gotten in the way of getting to the best outcomes for young people and their families in the past with many of the programs that have been available to young people. And so it does things like remove time limits. So can you imagine so many of our service providers, you know, that they have housing programs with one year long time limits. And there are reasons for that. I mean, they have a lot of the barriers in place that sometimes it's funder driven and funding driven. Sometimes there are concerns about young people stay in a housing program longer than a year. The organization then becomes a is considered a landlord and there are some issues with that. And so there are excuses for why there are time limits. But what we're finding is if you remove time limits and support a young person for as long as they need to transition into adulthood in a, in a healthy way, then you're going to get much better outcomes in the areas of social inclusion, well-being, uh, attachment to education and employment. So say they're 16, 17, they get into an organization that has one-year transitional program. It's a great program, great housing. They provide all kinds of life skills training, et cetera. But the young person knows that they have no housing at the end of the one year. It's pretty doubtful that they're going to re-engage with education or stick with education if they know that their housing is going to drop off. They're probably going to be funneled to, you know, whatever low-wage job they can get their hands on so that they can get an apartment, some basement somewhere, <laughs> you know. Really, the housing course for youth really flips on the head that somehow homeless youth are different than our own children because young people need options. They need support for as long as they need to be able to get to that place where, you know what, mom and dad, I don't, I don't need to come live in your basement. I've got it together. 
Um, but we need to give all young people those kinds of sports. So that's what Housing Course Free really is, is meant to do. And what we're seeing, um, you know, we're, we've, with our, our outcomes data so far from all the different sites, we're seeing that the outcomes uh, around mental health and well-being, um, attachment to education and employment, social inclusion, all of those outcomes are much, much greater than the uh, treatment as usual group. And so that's the reason why we're doing the demonstration project so that we can show if you invest in a housing first for youth model with young people, you're going to get much better outcomes, which means down the road, you're going to have a lot of cost savings to the system and to multiple systems because young people aren't going to need to access all of those systems for support. A groundbreaking prevention approach is duty to assist, a law implemented in Wales in 2014 that legally obligates municipal authorities to help anyone at risk of homelessness. There are clear timelines for ensuring that those in need receive assistance and access to housing. Making the Shift and the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness worked with other community partners to develop a roadmap for how duty to assist can be adapted for youth in Canada. A key partner in the establishment of this kind of intervention are schools, where teachers, guidance counselors, and coaches would be obligated to assist any student who may be at risk of homelessness. Erica Morton is a systems planning officer at the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness. Prior to this position, she worked with the Street Youth Planning Collaborative in Hamilton, which included youth who have lived experience with homelessness. Erica reflects on what these youth taught her about the intervention points that might have helped prevent them from experiencing homelessness. One of the things that also resonated with me is that, um, especially for the youth who I work with as a part of the committee, they were like often saying they were doing this work, they were doing this committee work because they felt that no youth should have to go through what they went through. And so this is sort of, I guess, their way of not just giving back, but like holding systems accountable so that no youth has to experience homelessness again. And they often talked about how there were definitely things that could or should have been in place that would have prevented them from experiencing homelessness ever in the first place. And like one of the more sort of probably one of the last <laughs> examples that I could think of from the youth was we were they were a part of this project called Duty to Assist, which is looking at sort of how to implement policy and legislation so that professionals such as like teachers, et cetera, if they know a youth is at risk, they are sort of required to make sure they get connected with services. So there was a group of eight youth, a part of this project as sort of the advisors. And during sort of like the course of interviews and workshops, they had all identified that when they were in sort of their school years or like high school, they all had some sort of red flags that were going on at that time and that nobody offered any support or any sort of intervention. So whether it was like missing school, you know, or just maybe perhaps behavioral issues, not completing assignments, yeah, other sort of red flags. And they felt that that could have been a key point of intervention for them, almost like that was sort of a turning point, I guess, for them in terms of their trajectory. So that's always stuck out in terms of, for me, like, wow, like, how are we really engaging the education sector and schools in this work if youth are telling us that, like, that is sort of the hotspot uh, from which there could be really good prevention-based initiatives? Um, because, you know, ideally we would have initiatives where, so that a youth doesn't even have to experience homelessness in the first place. Erica was involved in the discussions around what a duty to assist youth homelessness initiative could look like in Canada. There were real challenges of getting full buy-in. 
a legislative program like this has legal implications. What if a school does not or cannot effectively help students find suitable housing? Who's responsible? What are the implications? And where will the resources come from? It's a common theme that came through in the interviews. Innovative strategies and a deep desire to help prevent homelessness can be stymied by real concerns about resources, accountability, and liability. The consequence of the government's patchwork and under-resourced response to homelessness. Despite this, many teachers and others working directly with youth are already doing much of this work to assist and intervene out of concern and care, and often without any resources or support. Marcy McEvin from Keeping Six talks about the teachers who helped her and reflects on the young people she's worked with and their experiences as they enter adulthood unhoused. Two of my teachers became my counselors, became the people I trust, and people I still talk to today. I was in grade nine in 1994, I guess, and like we still talk. And one of them like met with me. The school wanted me to go to counseling. They wanted to do all this the intervention, right? They're like, let's try to make things better. And they send me to some counselor and and I ended up not engaging with that person. And one teacher, I met with them every Monday for lunch. We'd just spend our lunch hour together talking about my life. People that experience homelessness as youth are more likely to experience homelessness as adults. And sometimes there's not a break in between. What I struggle with in regards to youth homelessness, being someone that was homeless as youth, and being someone that watched their friends die as homeless youth, is that there comes this point where you're a young person who's homeless and everybody wants to help you and people want to support you. And, and I see it with people I talk to. And, and then all of a sudden you're an adult and people aren't too interested in helping. That you go from being someone they want to work with to someone who, why the hell are you homeless? And I see it in people in that age group now. Is, and they say the same thing I said is like, at one point you supported me and now you condemn me. Your compassion went to criticism just because my age changed. And that's hard to look at. Imagine the impact if teachers, coaches, and others were given the time, support, and resources needed to notice the red flags and intervene early. The investment required to fully support schools to assist could prevent not just youth homelessness, but could change the rest of a person's life, helping to end homelessness for all. Another important aspect of youth prevention is helping to support families. Sometimes family is not safe, but in other cases, connecting youth experiencing homelessness with family can have long-term benefits. This is a philosophy and policy shift. In the past, sometimes family was seen as the enemy, and once social services stepped in, the young person was disconnected from family members. Now there's more effort and investment in providing supports to families through things like family remediation, counseling, and connecting with resources. This makes sense when research shows that major stressors on family dynamics can stem from the lack of safe, affordable housing, as well as to food, employment, and mental health supports. Connection to family and to community and culture is the basis for Undayang, a housing first for youth program in Hamilton. Its focus is supporting indigenous youth between the ages of 16 to 24 who are exiting youth systems, such as children's services, justice, hospital systems, or leaving home for safety reasons. Cheryl Green is the manager of housing and homelessness supports and services at the Hamilton Regional Indian Center, or the HRIC. Andai Young is one of the many programs that HRIC facilitates as part of its work with the urban indigenous community in and around Hamilton. Shell talks about Andai Young, its focus on connecting youth to indigenous knowledge and culture and the challenges of sustainable funding. 
in Hamilton, we were very lucky in the sense of having an opportunity to work with Away Home Canada and COH under making the shift to develop a Housing First for Youth project. And there's also one in Toronto and one in Ottawa. But in Hamilton, ours is called Undayan. And it's an Ojibwe word meaning a safe place where your heart or spirit feels at home. And we developed that project really to be able to focus on the needs of our Indigenous young people who were exiting systems, so child welfare, justice, healthcare, or their safety was at risk. And the, one of the major goals was to be able to support these young people and teach the tools necessary, look at the skill development, and what could we do to support them and nurture their spirit in order to be able to reduce the risk of them being homeless adults. And so we utilized the Housing First for Youth framework that was developed. We identify with the Housing First core principles, and we also utilize the outcomes. However, when we developed this project, we shifted how we were going to do the delivery. We changed the language that we were going to use and the content so that it was reflective of Indigenous ways of being and knowing. We held a grounding ceremony. You know, we had a sunrise ceremony with staff and youth and partners, so COH staff, Away Home Canada staff, and we offered our tobacco to the fire. And we, we shared our intentions of, of what it meant to be able to do this work together. And so it really gave an opportunity that we, we started this project together in order to be able to support Indigenous young people and be successful. And so in the development of that project, we incorporated the medicine wheel, looking at the four quadrants, and really to be able to utilize this to empower our youth to live a balanced, holistic lifestyle, focusing on their mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. We incorporated the seven grandfather teachings to live life in a good way. And it's how, how do we conduct ourselves and our actions towards others? Those things are really important. And a lot of our young people not having that connection to community, connection to culture, are missing out on those very important ways of life. We also utilize the circle of courage, which is a way of recognizing the trauma that they have experienced recognizing who we are as Indigenous people. Where do we come from? And then how do we change those behaviors or beliefs that we have in order to be able to focus on mending a broken spirit and into a positive or a healed one and be able to move forward instead of staying stuck in that place of trauma or grief? We have shown progress with this project. We have developed many great partnerships, one being the, the city of Hamilton with their city housing 
and we we access 10 units in their building, which were a saving grace to be able to help our young people to start to learn those skills of living independently. Part of the challenge that we are in right now is that it's a project, which is challenging all on its own to wait to see if we have more funding to continue making a difference in our young people's lives. We have 25 participants in Andayan, some of which receive rent supplements in order for them to help sustain their, their unit. We ensure that they have access to technology. We focus on employment, education, well-being, social inclusion. What happens or what will happen to these 25 young people should this funding not continue at HRIC, we're looking, okay, trying to be creative, but what it comes down to is funding, sustainable funding in order for us to continue doing the work that we need to be doing and really being able to provide the best level of support for our Indigenous community members so that they can be successful. We cannot meaningfully talk about homelessness in Canada without discussing Indigenous homelessness. Indigenous peoples living in urban areas experience homelessness at a disproportionate rate. Indigenous people make up 4.5% of the Canadian population, yet research shows that Indigenous homelessness in major urban areas ranges from 20 to up to 50% of the total homeless population. In Hamilton, over 25% of the homeless population is Indigenous. Cheryl Green discusses the work of the HRIC to help the Indigenous community experiencing and at risk of homelessness and to support them in healing from the legacies of colonialism, historical trauma, and ongoing oppression, racism, and discrimination. We have tried to be as diligent as possible to make sure that we're developing and being proactive and, you know, creative. We actually developed a food bank to address food insecurity since COVID has happened. We have employment and education programs to create opportunity to enhance social economic status. We have youth and transition workers and housing support workers to make sure that we are supporting our youth that are involved with child welfare so that they can be successful in their transition into adulthood and independence. And we've also furthered that relationship with CAS and CCS and developed a collaborative to reduce barriers, increase family unity, and ensure equitable treatment for all Indigenous families involved. We have, I think, 35, 36 programs in total. So the list can go on as to how we do things to ensure that our Indigenous community and primarily those who are homeless or at risk of homelessness have access so that we can, you know, make sure that the family's well-being is being nurtured, that, you know, we're focusing on self-improvement and health and wellness. We also look at the Indigenous culture and what does that mean and how do we use culture to support our families. One of the things that I actually wanted to quickly touch on is the the definition of Indigenous homelessness uh, written by uh, Jesse Thistle. And, And it is a human condition that describes First Nations people. Right? It isn't defined as the lack of structure, which most people look at being homeless. It's more about understanding uh, and looking at things from um, the lens of an ind- Indigenous worldview. There 
isn't equitable funding being provided to Indigenous communities to do the work necessary to really focus on the homelessness issue. When supporting our Indigenous people, it goes beyond, like I said, you know, the definition, it goes beyond providing a roof over someone's head, which can be a challenge in itself. But it is about creating a home. It's about stabilizing their housing so that they can focus on addressing the traumas that many Indigenous people have endured over many generations. It's about creating a sense of community. It's about addressing the long-standing impacts of colonialism. In order to really focus, I think, on the root cause of Indigenous homelessness, we need to support our community members with everything, right? What we're looking at from loss of identity, connection to land, family and kin connections, roles and responsibilities, healthy relationships, understanding who we are as Indigenous people, where do we come from, and recognizing that we need to identify and address the impacts of colonization that continue to affect our people, right? There needs to be more support when we're looking at social assistance. There needs to be more supports for Indigenous people developed and delivered by Indigenous people. But really, the funding is not there to be able to do that. At some point, we've experienced trauma, and we get stuck in that trauma place. And a lot of times, we don't understand why this has happened or why we feel a certain way or how something impacts us. But the reality is, is that connection to land, that connection to Mother Earth has that ability to be able to help us move through that healing process, to have an understanding of the the Indigenous teachings, the medicine wheel, how to live a balanced lifestyle. When we look at the seven grandfather teachings, having a a good way of, of living our life and recognizing that trauma and being able to overcome it and moving forward and having the support of your community with you to be able to do that. Canada is reeling from the discoveries of the remains of hundreds of children at the sites of former residential schools. This is just the beginning, as it is inevitable that more bodies will be found. More than 4,100 children, and perhaps as many as 6,000, died while attending these schools due to malnourishment, disease, accidents, and neglect. Commitments for support and funding and for reaffirming the call to actions laid out in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 2015 report abound by public officials. Yet on the ground, there continues to be a lack of support and funding for programs that are Indigenous-designed and led, and which provide timeframes and approaches that are attuned to decades of cultural genocide. How can governments meaningfully address the historical treatment of Indigenous peoples when Indigenous homelessness still exists and the factors that cause it still remain? As Jeff Nevin from Indwell reflects, addressing the legacy of oppression and abuse is not just about resources. It's about values. It's about what's important to us. And we think about residential schools and the trauma that happened to Indigenous children and families in Canada. And we look back and we say, how could that ever happen? Who let that happen? Well, the answer is we did. It's easy to point at someone else and say they should have done something. But Canadians knew that Indigenous children were being pulled away from their families and put into residential schools. Canadians knew. The government knew. Institutions knew. Churches knew. My social work profession 
was behind this. We knew. And today, we know that homelessness is killing people. And we know that it's still racialized. In the cities of Hamilton and London, the stats are similar. 29% of homeless people in Hamilton and London identify as Indigenous, while Indigenous people make up about 4% of the population in each of the cities. And our homeless people are dying. We know. This is not about resources, this is about value. So we can look back in history and we can grieve and we should and we can remember and we should, but we also need to look to today and say, and what are we doing today that we know about that is unjust, that is happening right now. There is not one Canadian who does not know that our homeless situation is spiraling out of control. There's not one Canadian that doesn't know that this is racialized. And yet we're choosing to throw small efforts in the direction of a solution without actually having an interest in creating a real solution. Jesse Thistle is a Matee Cree Scott author and scholar who has lived experience with homelessness and addiction. Cheryl referenced Jesse's definition of Indigenous homelessness as individuals, families, and communities isolated from the relationships to land, water, place, family, kin, each other, animals, cultures, languages, and identities. How can governments meaningfully address past wrongs and ever hope to end homelessness when we have an economic system that continues to relocate people from their homes and still puts them in the hands of the highest bidder, those with the power and influence to control land and who lives on it? The fact that homelessness still exists points to the deep failures of interconnected systems still rooted in inequity. This discussion continues in the second part of this episode. In part two, we'll further explore the system's level challenges and opportunities that exist for ending homelessness. Keep listening or bookmark part two to come back to later. Thanks for listening.